right, everyone, let's call a timeout. Our next guest for season two is the highly accomplished Dr. Ruth Mitchell. Dr. Mitchell, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a treat. For those of our listeners who may not know you, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. So um, I am a neurosurgeon and I am an anti-nuclear campaigner and activist. Um, I have done um, the things that I that I'm most proud of in my life are my involvement in um, gender and um, racial equity in surgery and in science. Um, and I'm really uh, very grateful to be able to share some of the insights that I've had along the way. And um, I think the other thing about me is that when people get to know me, they try and figure out where I'm from. So people can't always place my accent. And so it's important for you to know that I'm from everywhere. So you can go with that wherever you want. We, we will definitely be touching on that. It sounds like we'll have a lot to cover. We like to start off with a few warm-up questions, Ruth. So can you take us through your day so far? Do you have a, a typical day in the life of a neurosurgeon? Well, at the moment, my life is very atypical because although I um, am a neurosurgeon, right at the moment, my main job is finishing my PhD thesis. So most of my day today has been wrangling um, a draft of a data chapter um, and looking at the very specific experiments I did 435 years ago and trying to figure out what I did and why I did it and how to present those data in a way that tells an interesting story about a protein that I like, which is the epidermal growth factor receptor. So today has been uh, tear your hair out at the computer has been the theme. Ruth, what are you listening to or reading at the moment? Is there anything you'd recommend? So I um, have been reading and listening to quite a lot more in the last 12 months because of lockdown and socially distanced walks and runs and all that sort of thing. And I've gotten into audiobooks um, for the first time really in my life. And so um, I have been working my way through the Booker Prize winning books um, and kind of working backwards. Um, so I have been totally overwhelmed by how great two books in particular um, have been. And that is um, Girl, Woman, Other by uh, Bernadine Evaristo, which tells all these wonderful um, interwoven stories of women from different generations and different backgrounds. Um, and I really, really loved that book. I want to read it again. And listening to it was great because you get all the different cascading voices. And um, that was that was really special. And then the other one that was a standout was another um, winner of the Booker, which was um, Milkman by Anna Byrne. And it's the first time that a Northern Irish author has won the Booker. And so this woman is basically telling a tale of growing up as a woman in Belfast during the Troubles. And there's just so many layers to what goes on there. Um, and in this wonderful Northern Irish accent too. So it, I felt transported. So those, are, those would be my, my two top recommendations from the last 12 months of reading and listening. And in terms of music, I, over the last 24 hours, have been listening to everything Rihanna. And the reason I've been doing that is because I just wanted to acknowledge that she uh, has taken a stand on a really comp uh, an issue that we haven't been thinking about, which is um, the farmers' strike in India. And I think that 
Um, I want to acknowledge that that's a significant issue that's going on at the moment and that it has links to issues in Australia, um, particularly because of the influence of Adani. Um, and so I think we do well to listen to um, farmers in India on that issue. Um, and I just was really encouraged by the fact that Rihanna used her enormous platform to draw attention to something that's outside of the Western framework um, and helped people to see something beyond themselves. And so, it, you know, in recognition of that, I've just been listening to all her tunes and it's put me in a much better frame of mind. So I highly recommend a little bit of a, a Rihanna-like festival for all of your listeners. Well, as a final introductory question, Ruth, if there was one profession outside of surgery that you could try, what would it be and why? So when I was little, I wanted to be an astronaut. And I still think about it sometimes. And I think, um, you know, there's something remarkable and engaging and miraculous and yet totally scientific about going into space. Um, and it, there's something about being at the edge of what is known that's super alluring and super, super appealing. And I'm grateful that I have a profession and a career where I feel like I get to do that anyway. And actually when I was in medical school and I discovered neurosurgery, I remember the moment like looking at the brain, looking at the, the cerebellar folia, the posterior fossa during this tumor resection as a final year med student and looking at that and going, this is so beautiful. And in that moment realizing I could do this, I could be a neurosurgeon. And it was like being told you can be an astronaut because a lot of the same marvel and magic exists like at the edge of what is known that we deal with every day that we let that we treat the brain so ruth you alluded to the um, fascinating mix of cultures and surroundings that you've grown up in between i think to make sense of that we'll have to go back to the start can you tell us a little bit about where you were born and your early years Absolutely. So I was born and raised in Peru until I was 10 years old. So I'm a proud Peruvian citizen. I'm a first generation citizen. Um, so um, I was born in a little town called Urcos, which is near Cusco, which many people will have heard of and some will have had the opportunity to travel to. Cusco was the capital of the Inca Empire. And it's a really beautiful city in the mountains with all red roofs by law, they have to be red tiles and a lot of beautiful white walls and um, ringed by gorgeous mountains. So I grew up amongst the ruins of the Inca empire and the proud um, descendants of the Incas. Um, and I lived there, I lived in Cusco till I was seven. And then we moved to, um, uh, to uh, Arequipa, which is like the biggest city in the south of Peru, which is on the edge of the desert, um, built out of concrete, um, or sort of a stone that has come from volcanic stone. So it's also just a stunning city in a very different way. Um, and so my heart really, in a lot of ways, is still very much in Peru. And I'm very grateful that I had a start in life um, in such a rich, vibrant culture with the best food in the world and um, friendly, warm, like very communally oriented people. And I think that's left a mark on me which has taken me well through life. So I then at the age of 10, we moved to, my, me and my family moved to Scotland. And so um, I lived in Edinburgh for three years um, while my dad was doing his PhD there. And then we wanted to move back to Peru, but 
there was a civil war on and so which had been kicking off when towards the end of our time um, living in Peru but it became really unsafe to be in Peru if you had a choice so I was I've always been very sad about the fact that you know when I was 13 we couldn't move back to Peru I, I desperately wanted to um, but we moved to Ecuador um, so I, I finished high school in Ecuador in Quito um, at a school that was set up for missionary kids and international students, which is like a really fascinating place to meet people from literally every corner of the universe with, um, you know, parents in literally all every imaginable sector. Um, and uh, it was, um, yeah, really a really interesting upbringing. And so then I moved to Canada when I was 17 and started my undergrad in, in Calgary. When I finished my undergrad, I went and worked in Slovakia um, on a development project with Romani people. Romani people are sometimes referred to as gypsies, but that's a derogatory term. So describing them as um, Romani is the um, term that they use for themselves, a much more appropriate term. And so I worked with um, a community development project, which was funded by the Canadian government at that time, um, with children and youth in this desperately poor settlement on the edge of uh, um, a village. Um, and that gave me insights which have served me well in terms of the re reality of structural racism and the way that undermines health and determines health. Mm. It sounds like, yeah, you've, you've certainly had a real kind of mix of influences over your years. In terms of going back to your early years in South America, what were you interested in as a child? Did you always kind of have an interest in sciences and things like that? Or was it more social, political for you? So I think that as a child, I, first of all, I don't think I've ever made a distinction between the social, the political and like medical and scientific. And I think that, um, that it is a mistake to think of those as separate entities. Um, and, but it is often the way that we are taught in medical school that these are separate categories um, and it's not necessarily the explicit curriculum it's the it's the hidden curriculum and it's driven by like a really conservative worldview um, and the reason why I basically got to skip that misconception is because the people who I knew when I was a little tiny girl there were two doctors who were both like missionary doctors from the United Kingdom who'd come to work in Peru and really gave their lives to improve healthcare amongst um, some incredibly um, poor and poorly serviced communities. And one of them, who I call Uncle Nat, Dr. Nathaniel Davies, was the person who delivered me. And, you know, I'm still in touch with him. Um, many years later, I had a um, little mole removed from my back and um, and shortly afterwards, I went on a trip to Peru and I got my dad, I got, I, I asked him if he would take my, my sutures out. And he was like, I would be delighted. And um, he's, He's Welsh, so he he burst into song as he did it. Delightful. Um, and the other doctor who I grew up among, like grew up with, who was like basically the person who I was taken to when I was, you know, sick or whatever, um, someone I call Uncle Phil. So Dr. Phil Archer was a wonderful um, GP, and his kids were like my best friends. Like I grew up with them, and um, those two men both modelled a style of medicine which was community focused and which was very oriented towards justice and which was about access um, for the people who had the worst chance of having access 
and it was the opposite end of the spectrum of this kind of like acquisitive, you know, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like real estate portfolio oriented medicine, um, which um, we see a lot of in this environment. And so I was compelled from an early age that they had the coolest jobs I'd ever been witness to. So I'd made a decision that I was going to be a doctor when I was six. And I think it's because of them. And I've told them that. And when I finished neurosurgery training, I got in touch with both of them to say thank you because that, that you know, this is like, this is their legacy. I'm guessing they would have been pretty touched to hear from you after all those years of training, were they? Absolutely. And I mean, really, I think, I think that at any point in your life, getting positive feedback from someone that you've touched in your, in, in their life, it's always, it's always a blessing and it's always a gift and you never expect it. And I don't think of people who are senior and experienced as needing positive feedback, but it turns out that everyone benefits from it. And so if you have something nice to say, always say it, always say it. You mentioned the uh, influence of these doctors on your life, um, a couple of uncles that you had. Um, were your parents a major influence on you as well? Were they medical? No, neither of my parents are remotely medical. Um, both of my parents have advanced degrees in theology. Um, so when I was growing up, my dad was translating the Bible from uh, the, the ancient texts from um, Hebrew and Greek into Cusco Quechua, um, which was the main dialect of of Quechua that's spoken in the Cusco region. And um, that was at the request of the local church who had wanted to have an, the Bible in their own language and not just be reading it in Spanish, which is the language of the um, colonialists, if you will. And so um, my dad, um, who had, you know, gone to uni a little later in life, he started out as a civil servant and then, you know, went on to do a theology degree, um, or I guess a divinity degree, like in his 20s, had ended up really falling in love with the language end of things and um, found himself being really pulled towards and called towards Peru and ended up in this position. So I think um, he and my mother both gave me a strong sense of wanting to partner with people who were on the margins. And so similarly, my mother, who had um, been a, a Bible college um, teacher before she um, like went during the time that she met my dad um, and um, had a degree in nutrition and had done some, you know, had done all kinds of teaching work. She found herself um, partnering with communities um, that needed work around nutrition, work around literacy. Um, and at one point um, she actually helped set up some like knitting co-ops for women to sell their like alpaca um, knitted goods. Um, and so I've seen all these different examples growing up of people partnering with Indigenous people um, to help them to be self-actualized and be able to operate in uh, like a colonialized world. And I think it's taken me a long time to realize that actually what I was witness to was a form of like active decolonization um, and um, helping people to have agency and ask and responding to requests like you know well what do you want all right well I have the expertise I'm going to help you do what you want that kind of um, orientation to um, to this indigenous set of communities really um, I think that's probably become part of my deepest values because um, it's been there my whole life um, and 
is just part of what my parents have given me. I think being there for the the little guy and being available for the community and um, being aware of people on the margins is deeply ingrained in me because of my parents. And I particularly remember I was starting a new year of school. I would have been like maybe halfway through primary school. And my dad said to me, now I know that at break time, you will want to go and just hang out with your friends. But what I want you to do is to look and see who doesn't have anyone to sit with. And I want you to spend time with them. And I think that um, instruction has basically set my path for me in so many ways. Um, You know, you look around and see who's on the margin and you know there's something you can do about that. It is within your power to do something significant for people on the margin. And it is a conscious decision to do that or to not do that. Um, And I think most of us have far more a potential to do good than we realize or that or that we want to admit to it's interesting that um you speak ruth about kind of having compassion for the less fortunate and looking out for those people um and there's a, a lot of discussion about kind of the the clash and almost the opposition at times between science and religion do you think that is a complete fallacy do you think that they can coexist together oh very much so and i think that Um, there's a book I read probably when I was in my undergrad called God and the Biologist and I can't remember the author Um, but you know there are all kinds of smarter more articulate people than me that have drawn the link and have shown the ways in which the way that we read the natural world the way that we look at it um, can be seen through many lenses so For a person of faith, um, taking time to observe the natural world and to study, for example, the intricacies of how does the brain work or how do brain tumors grow or um, how does the epidermal growth factor receptor signal and what is its exact shape and size and configuration. There is the room to think of those disciplines as an act of worship and it's uh, like a spiritual discipline to um, really invest deeply and spend years on discovering what nature looks like. And I think that I feel that that's partly what I do. So Ruth, you mentioned your next move after that was to Calgary in Canada. And here you picked up not only the accent, but also two degrees, I believe, in arts and in science. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, I did one of each. Tell us about them. Yeah, so I I started out doing like, you know, biological sciences and very quickly realized that within that I was most interested in zoology. So one of the very best things about growing up in South America and specifically going to high school in Ecuador is that our high school like advanced placement biology field trip was to the Galapagos Islands. So... Um, yeah, like it, it, I wasn't mad about it. Like that was okay. Um, so we spent like five days floating around on a boat, like, you know, so overnight you sail to another Island and then you get off with the guide who's like got a, like, um, you know, a marine biology degree or whatever. And he takes you around and explains all the wildlife to you. And you like take pictures without a flash though. And you like, and we had all these assignments. So we're like, you know, going deep into like, exactly how all these 
tortoises ended up with different shapes, you know, different shapes and um, trying to figure out what Darwin was thinking when he got there and how it all made sense. And it really made sense to me being there. What Darwin, what had made sense to Darwin made sense to me, seeing the evidence in front of me. Um, and it's an amazing, just an amazing place. And so I was kind of obsessed with animals um, and, and comparative, like physiology and comparative anatomy. And I just thought, oh, these things are, everything's just so like wonderful and beautiful and like stunning and how cool. And then you start learning like more, the more detail you, you learn, the more you love it. Um, and so once I was doing this generalized biology thing, I realized I could just do zoology and like, I didn't have to do like, then I didn't have to do any botany and I could be like microbiology light. I'm like, perfect. Like this is the right scale for me. Um, but I also really liked biochemistry, which has turned out to be useful. So um, those are the two things I kind of liked the most. So I ended up focusing on zoology. So I was like well underway with this zoology degree when I discovered political science. And I was like, where have you been all my life? This is the best fun. Like, how good is this? Like, you get to sit there and talk about what's happening in the Middle East for marks. Like, this is glorious. And, you know, you're reading these books and you're like, oh, now it makes sense. And as someone who's grown up traveling and who's obsessed with geography and like, you know, like I'd be the person you'd want on your trivia team because I know which countries are like north and south of the border and which which is the capital of X and like all that stuff, like all over it already. And then to be able to like learn all the whys, like why, why did that border end up there? Oh, it's still contentious. Interesting. Good times. And, and, um, and think about the, like, how does power work? Like, wh why do things happen the way they do? And I remember meeting lots of people during that time, you know, during the time that I was basically doing two degrees concurrently. And, you know, people would say, oh, what are you doing that for? And I, the best answer I could come up with was that, like, I wanted to study all the animals. And I think that studying all the animals has been the best possible preparation for everything that's happened since uh, in ways that I couldn't have, could never have imagined. And it really underpins the idea that like nothing is wasted. So if someone has an academic interest, you know, the fact that quote unquote, that will never get you a job or whatever should be completely ignored. Like that's not the purpose of education. Like you're meant to be expanding your mind while you've still got one. Um, and you don't know what seed you're planting. You just don't know what it's going to grow into. Um, you know, without a political science degree, I would not be nearly as well placed to think about the policy issues around like nuclear weapons and, you know, security um, policy and definitions of security and all the sort of stuff you have to do to make the connections. Th that's where I got the foundations for that. And there were a couple of people who I remember like, most of the time when you have these conversations, it's a bit like when you're a little kid and people go, oh, now what do you want to be when you grow up? And like they've, let, they've lost interest as soon as you start talking. Like they look away and they're already not interested. They were just trying to kind of f figure out something to say to the eight year old or whatever. And um, by the same token, someone would go, oh, you know, you're doing two degrees. And then they, they would just like go into like really boring mode and be like, oh, that's really interesting. And you're like, you've got nothing interesting to say to me. And then I met this guy called Leslie Sclair, who's like a sociologist from London School of Economics. I met it at some conference on like globalization. And he's fascinating. He did all this really important policy work around tobacco and everything. And he grew up in like, in like Glasgow, working, working class Glasgow. So I felt an affinity to him because 
His accent was almost like my dad's, but not quite, because my dad's from Fife. Um, but there were a lot of commonalities, and I think they're probably the same vintage. And um, he said, well, that'll give you some really useful insights into the methodological problems of the social sciences. And I thought, you know, it really does. I'm glad someone's understood that, you know? And, and I think that methodology and rigor and like, how do you figure out what you know? That's, those are important questions, those are big questions. So yeah, being at the intersection of a couple of disciplines does shed a lot of light. So he was the one who made the most interesting and like insightful comment about my two degrees that I ever met. So that's why I remembered him. Yeah, that's fantastic. I think that probably particular has relevance for um, a lot of our listeners who might be medical students or junior doctors. Um, it seems it's perhaps becoming slightly easier these days to you know, take a year out, do something different, um, take a break between undergrad and postgrad medicine, for example. Um, we had one of our previous guests last year speak about creative procrastination um, and the idea, that same idea that you've spoken about that no learning is lost and any academic interest will be um, useful in some context and will shape you as a person and as a doctor. Um, so without putting words in your mouth, would you say to all those people, you know, maybe thinking about pushing on versus taking a break, doing something different, you know, go for it and, and see what you can learn? I think that you've got to make a path that works for you. And there are all kinds of external forces that will that have a plan for your life that is not informed by a deep knowledge of you or of your goals or of the environment that you're going to be working in. And so it, it's really difficult, but this is the key thing about like whatever you want to call it, adulting, is that you've got to actually make your own path. And your path doesn't actually have to make sense to anyone else. And to try and give yourself permission and give yourself the freedom to do something unconventional. I mean, I have had deviated from what most people would, would imagine is the normal way to become a neurosurgeon so many times and in so many ways. And I think that, I don't think any of those have detracted from making me the kind of neurosurgeon who is most able to serve my patients quite the opposite. Um, you know, I have far more to draw on in my clinical encounters because I'm multilingual, because I'm well-traveled, because I'm a bit older, or maybe I'm a lot older, maybe I'm 900, you know? The point is, um, you know, I think you have to give yourself permission to not fit a mold. And at the same time, you have to be mindful that for some goals, there are some very specific requirements and there's some steps you have to go through. So you can't just backpack around sub-Saharan Africa and simultaneously get through medical school. Like you've got to put your nose down and have your bum up and like, you know, head in a book and like out of the clouds for a critical period of time to get certain things ticked off on the journey. There are requirements to get from A to B. But there's lots of other bits that are not requirements and being like boring and like doing it all in one go and like those things are not required but you'd think they were by the way some people go about it um so in addition to like choosing your own path and following the things that you're most interested like if you're interested or passionate in pursuing something a field of study or creative pursuit or or something else you've really got to respect and listen to that because what i see is the most 
like dangerous doctors are bored doctors. So people who haven't found their niche or who are sitting there like wishing they were somewhere else, wishing they'd done things when they could have. And I don't want that for anybody. I don't just not want it for the doctor. I don't want it for their patients or their teams or their families or anybody. So, you know, there's plenty of things and potential that we all have within us. And we've got to decide what are those things I have to get out of my system and actually do that. Um, And kind of something that goes with that for me is that it's really important to like curate your mentors and like who's going to speak into your life because there are lots of people who will try and speak into your life and they might be incredibly well-intending. They may be wise. They may want the best for you, but it might not be the right advice for you or they might be malicious and like they might just be a jerk. They might be like, you know, essentially trolling you. Um, Regardless, you have to become discerning about which voices you're going to listen to and you have to decide who you want to like actively pursue for advice. You know, there's some people you're like, that's nice that you think you can tell me what to do. Like, and because they're your boss, you have to smile and nod sweetly while you're there on the ward round with them. But you don't take it into your soul if it's not right for you. If it doesn't feel correct or it doesn't, it's not a good fit, then, you know, you have to be discerning about that. And you have to trust your own judgment sometimes and go, I think that person is dodgy and I don't agree with them. Or I think they mean well, but it's not the 1940s anymore. Um, and just decide where to file those incoming bits of data and advice. You know, be, be choosy. That's a really interesting point. And I think a lot of um, junior doctors, medical students and the like think a lot about who my mentor should be, who should I be looking up to. Um, We had another one of our guests last year speak about mentors being a reflection of yourself, um, which is similar to what you're talking about in terms of not telling you um, what to do. Do you uh, have any advice in particular in terms of seeking out specific mentors? Do you think it's something that should happen more naturally? Does everyone need a mentor? I think that most people end up with a variety of people who have either mentor roles or um, they might be more of an inspiration from afar. You might have just had a single encounter with someone that was incredibly significant and that shouldn't be downplayed because it's not an ongoing connection or relationship. Um, And people speak into all different aspects of your life and they inform all different parts of who you are and what you're trying to do with your life. Um, and there's also another concept, which is like the idea of sponsorship. And so I think that now that I'm increasingly someone who, like I find myself wanting to put energy into other people and wanting to like, and it's one of the mechanisms I think that we can address some of the inequality that we see and the lack of diversity that we see in our professions um, is really targeted mentoring and particularly going that extra mile. So the difference between, um, you know, a mentor and a sponsor is like a sponsor's got skin in the game. So you're you're pinning your own reputation to someone else's success. You're backing them. You're saying, like, I stand for this person. Um, and if they have a, if they fall on their face, then I lose face too. Like that level of inv- investment is partly why I have been able to succeed and progress. And I know that there are some deep structural problems we have 
uh, with racism and sexism and a variety of other discriminatory sort of baked in problems that we've got in medicine. And while we try to address these structural problems, because we can't just mentor our way out of these problems. One of the sort of stopgap measures that I think that I want to invest in and I want to encourage other people to do is to bring other people along with you as you go, as you progress, as you have successes. You, you know, you didn't get there on your own. Don't for a moment imagine you're fancy and you manage this by yourself. You've worked your ass off, great, but it, you're mostly there because of a heap of privilege and because people backed you. So acknowledge and accept that that's real and then decide intentionally, who am I bringing with me? And make decisions that are strategic. Like try not to just bring more people that look just like you with you. You know, that kind of energy. Like who's missing at the table? Why don't we have, um, you know, there's entire communities missing from this conversation. Where, Where are they? Like what am I doing to identify people as they identify themselves to me? How am I meeting that challenge? So that sponsorship piece is another level. So I think if you're starting out as a medical student, you want to be looking around, A, for who speaks to you and who like makes you excited to be going into this field and who um, is improving your life and who's making your brain like space bigger and all of those things. Who's like, you know, who's got that magic touch and and like find ways of getting them to speak into your life more. Um, And it's a two-way street because like, I love an enthusiastic medical student who actually wants to learn. I get a lot out of that encounter. It's not like they're sapping my energy. They're giving me energy, you know? So don't feel bad about it. I mean, if if you feel like you're like um, stalking someone, then you need to back up. But, um, and I've had um, two male medical students follow me into the ladies room in like, uh, accidentally, I presume. I, I will give them the benefit of the doubt because we're having like really engaged discussions and they just kind of didn't realize where we were. And I'm like, um, so I don't agree with a gender binary, but like we do have a binary system of like changing rooms in this hospital. So yours is over there. Like, you know, this is an awkward discussion to have to have. Um, so, you know, you can go too far, but like generally you want to be looking looking around. And, I, and then the next step is find out who those sponsors are going to be. Like who's really going to back you? Like who's going to take the extra step for you? And as you discover those people, think about how you can be that for someone else. So don't let it be a one-way street. Every single thing you learn in a mentoring relationship, you need to be passing that on, paying it forward and um, feeding it back into what I hope is like be- becoming a like a vibrant, supportive community, as opposed to a room full of individuals. You then went on to study medicine, coming to Australia and I believe studying in Adelaide. Yes, that's right. Tell us about that. What was that like for you and what were you like as a medical student? Um, So yeah, so I went to Flinders Medical School and what was I like as a medical student? Well, I think if you were to ask the people in my first PBL group, that might be a good indication. So one day, one of the more like, um, like talented members of my PBL group drew this like cartoon of like all of us and had various people, some individuals in states of drunken disarray, um, you know, people with speech bubbles saying the sort of things they typically said. Um, and I was like standing with a peace sign like making a peace sign in one hand and with the other hand I was holding a sign that said save the gay whales 
and there was like a whale behind me. And so I was like, well, that's how they thought I was. And I'm like, where's the lie? Like, <laughs> I feel seen. <laughs> um, so that was interesting that, you know, very early on, I think people kind of got my number and like understood my like approach to life. Um, and I was, um, I joined the health and human rights group at Flinders like right from the onset. And my second year I was the, like, I don't remember whether it was chair or president, whatever, the head of that club. And so I thought we need to do something other than movie nights. Like movie nights are great and catering is fab, but like we need to do something outside of these walls. And that escalated quickly. And we ended up doing these visits to Baxter Detention Center. And we went and visited um, asylum seekers who were detained there. And so we probably went up maybe every other month or so. We'd go up on a Saturday. We'd drive up on a Saturday. It's like a four-hour drive from Adelaide um, at least. And then we'd go and visit um, the detainees in the afternoon. And then we'd go and buy whatever they wanted because they're like two visiting blocks. And we'd go buy whatever they wanted like – in town and then we take it back to them for the sec- for the second block and then we found this like lovely man who was like uh, like a local guy who'd been visiting there for years and he was like a a civil servant um in town and he like he like was like you know you stay with me you stay with me and he like opened his fridge and he's like what are you drinking ruth and like he'd like stocked his fridge and he's like i didn't know everyone's dietary so i've made vegetarian and you're like this is not the rural south australia that you've heard about like this is like an amazing, like progressive. Then there's people dotted around the place that were doing these things. And I think that, you know, that's the thing I'm most proud of in med school, other than the fact that I like passed my exams and got through and got out is that like, I started those trips to Baxter Detention Center and medical students kept doing that until Baxter closed. So it became a thing that was permanent essentially until Baxter wasn't there. And I think a number of the people who went on those trips they probably had an interest and a passion for like refugee health beforehand but quite a number of them have ended up pursuing careers where that's a big part of what they do clinically um, and it's expanded their advocacy and I think you know I was like I remember one of my friends asking me he's like what's your agenda I was like what do you mean what's my agenda we're gonna go visit humans and at the same time I'm like obviously I'm trying to radicalize our medical school class duh like obviously like how is this a question of course you my my agenda is very very transparent here right like i think it's obvious come on so i think that's probably how i was the other thing i would say is i understand there was some discontent within my pbl group by whoever was on the food roster after me because i would always make up for my lack of knowledge by like making some sensational treats when it was my day to bring food so like compensating for shortcomings with baking and cooking is definitely something I think I was also known for. What were your specialties? I like to make Peruvian food because then people would get to taste stuff they hadn't had before. So I'd make um, empanadas, um, which now people know what that is. But like, you know, I can tell you that in 2004 in South Australia, people had not heard of empanadas. And so they're like, you know, I remember one of my classmates saying, do yourself a favor and have one of these Peruvian pasties. And I was like, that's what it is. It's a Peruvian pasty. So, yeah, it was one of my trademark items. Um, it, certainly um, your strong sense of social justice from an early um, time in, in medicine certainly comes across. And one of the other experiences that you sought out as a medical student was 
involvement in activism against nuclear weapons and nuclear warfare. How did you initially become involved in what snowballed to be a massive global movement against nuclear warfare? So I like these days when I get emails, I like skim over them and try and delete as many as possible. But when I was in first year medical school, I was like the first person to open their inbox. I read every email. I had them all filed. Like it was a different time. And I got this email, as did all the medical students at Flinders from Ian Maddox, who this was my first year of med school. Ian Maddox was one of the foundation professors at Flinders. He helped start the med school. He also helped start a med school in um, in Papua New Guinea. He is a doyen of palliative care in Australia. Um, and he was senior um, Australian of the year some years ago. And he had been involved with the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, which is the, the Australian... Um, peace-loving doctors mob um, for many years and also he'd been very involved internationally with like the federation for all that sort of all those sorts of people which is called the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War IPPNW. So he wrote to say the South Australian branch of MAPW would like to send a medical student like would like to provide funding for a medical student to go to um, this Congress in Beijing of IPPNW. Uh, and I was like, I have never responded to an email more quickly in my whole entire life. And that includes the email which told me that I'd gotten onto neurosurgery training. Like I was like, I was so quick. I was like, oh my God, yes. And so what grew out of that, as, as you know, is that um, over the next few years, there was great discontent at a, at a global level, really, with the fact that the progress at the United Nations to try and get get to zero nuclear weapons was going nowhere fast um, and the non-proliferation treaty has been the main treaty that has like governed this space um, so in 2005 um, Ron McCoy who uh, is an obstetrician um, from Malaysia um, uh, now now very much retired but um, you know he's been involved in this work for decades and he got to this point of like extreme frustration with nothing happening at the MPT and he said no 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 we need an international like global campaign to get rid of nuclear weapons and at the time I think a lot of people within IPPNW thought that that's what we already were and didn't really understand like you can go bigger and broader and you can actually do this in a much more definitive way and you can bring people on board who are from every walk of life and we can partner better with like you know church groups and like other religious groups and with unions and you know all of these sorts of entities and so after a time the the medical association for the prevention of war were the entity that really kind of took up that challenge and spearheaded the work towards ICANN and then brought it back to the IPPNW to endorse it globally and so at, during this time I was like first I was just like I'm just here for the ride and very quickly I was like I'm the MAPW student rep and then I was like the international student rep for IPPNW. And so pretty soon I'm at all the committee meetings where all this discussion is happening. And I was like, I can't believe I'm in the room. Like, I cannot believe I'm in this discussion. I was there when we were picking the name. I was there when we were picking the logo. And we came up with the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. I can. And so that got launched formally in 2007 here in uh, Melbourne and then in Vienna. And it's just gone nuts. And it's been incredible to see that original vision of Ron McCoy become a reality. So from this idea and the thing that drove 
Ron was like, he delivered thousands of babies over the course, course of his career, but he felt this great moral responsibility towards babies who'd been born into a world bristling with nuclear weapons. And he wanted to give them a safer world to grow up in. And he's always said things to me like, we're going to get rid of them, Ruth. Maybe not in my lifetime, but definitely in yours. I'm like, no pressure. Um, but, you know, these the, having these people who've been in the fight for so long, um, you know, see you and believe in you and think you're part of this too, has is, is been terrifically empowering. And so as a junior doctor, when I was an intern, um, at, so I was an intern at Flinders, I would like my afternoon off, like every month, I took an afternoon off and I drove to the airport and I parked my car and I got on a plane to Melbourne and I came to Melbourne for the like ICANN board meetings. And then the next morning I would get the first flight back, just squeak in, in time for ward round, um, you know, the next day. And like now it seems ridiculous because now you just do zoom like duh it's better for the environment like how are you getting on a plane like this is nonsense but you know that's how it was you know that wasn't that long ago that was 2008 that I was an intern but it sounds like I'm describing describing like the middle ages but that's what we did I mean there were planes so obviously it wasn't the middle ages but whatever um it was just you know that's how we got things done so then in 2009, I ended up going to the United Nations for the MPT PrepCom, which is the preparatory conference that they have in the years leading up to the big review conference, which happens every five years. It was exciting to be at the UN and I got to deliver a speech. So I got to address the, um, the MPT PrepCom on behalf of civil society, on behalf of ICANN. So that was pretty special. Um, so there were some real high points and I got to meet some incredible people. But it was also like kind of just nice to get back to being a resident and know that I was doing something super practical that was helping someone right now instead of it being some sort of like indefinite future. We're going to shift the dial on global affairs, you know, because there's something beautiful about the individual tangible moments in medicine that's, you know, it's sort of soothing somehow. Well, on that large scale level that you talk about, there has been a lot of action um, since since those years ago, and um, I've been very excited to ask about 2017 with the Nobel Peace Prize. That must have been absolutely amazing. Tell us about that experience. So, so 2017 was the year that we um, ICANN was basically the main civil society partner that helped to shepherd the ban to uh, that makes the, the the treaty that makes nuclear weapons illegal through the United Nations system. So, um, you know, 122 countries voted to make nuclear weapons, to, 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 to basically approve the, the wording of this, this treaty, which meant that then as an international treaty, it became available uh, for people to join, for countries to join, to sign and to ratify. And that treaty um, came, came about on the 7th of July. So, when people think about winning the Nobel Peace Prize and that being the big prize of 2017, it's actually not true. The treaty was the real prize. Getting the treaty was the real prize. And getting a Nobel Peace Prize was the icing on that cake. I will tell you that when, when the treaty went through the UN, I was sitting up in bed and I was watching everything on my laptop and I was wearing red pajamas. And because 
um, I had to put my red ICANN pin on something that matched. So I was wearing my ICANN pin on my ICANN coloured pyjamas and I was, it was like the middle of the night and I watched what was happening in New York and I was just, I was just bawling. Like I was crying like a baby. I was so moved. It was such a phenomenal moment um, and it will stay with me forever. And and then I was like, oh, now I have to get to sleep. I've got to work tomorrow. Righto, okay. And it's so often the case from the sublime to the ridiculous. The day that we found out we'd won the Nobel Peace Prize, everyone has their own story. And I think my personal journey was that I was sitting in a cafe in Florence because I'd just been at a neurosurgery conference in Venice. I know what a hardship, <laughs> my horrible life. I was like, there's a neurosurgery conference in Venice. You know, I'm presenting at that. Yes, I am. So I, I went to Venice and the Biennale was on. What a shame, dreadful. So I did go to the conference um, at least a little bit and more than just the session I presented at, but maybe not by much. And then I took in a lot of amazing art and had a wonderful time. And it was just like my aftermath, my like quick whistle stop tour around Northern Italy before I like went back to get back on with life. And I was sitting in this cafe and I'm eating breakfast and I'm watching the television and it's early October and they've got Christmas music and English playing. And I'm like, why though? And I look up at the screen and they've got the Italian news reel going by. So there's no sound, but you can see the captions at the bottom in Italian and it's really obvious what's happening this woman is coming out to a podium the podium has this massive big like gold thing on it i'm like oh it's the nobel peace prize announcement and i look and i watch and then i see like international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons like coming across the bottom of the ticker tape and i'm like i'm like we just we just did we just win the nobel prize and i was just like shaking and crying and like kind of like screaming inside my head like and like, I'm like, oh my God. So I managed to get a screen grab of the TV with that on it. And, and then my phone starts going nuts, like text messages, like social media is like lit up like a Christmas tree. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I was like, we, we thought this was possible, but we didn't think this was probable. Like nobody actually thought this was going to happen. You know, really, honestly, we didn't really think. Um, so yeah, we were given the prize for our role in getting that treaty to where we got it to. So, um, yeah. And so then later in the year, um, like over 300 ICANN campaigners went to Oslo. So I got to go to Oslo and be part of the party. And it was unbelievable, like just unbelievable. It was, it was just, you know, it's one of those things where you're like, I was in Oslo for 74 hours and I was pinching myself the entire time. That sounds amazing. That uh, Italian conference sounds like the best conference ever if you come home with a Nobel Peace Prize. Like, How was your holiday? Yeah. Oh, look, it was all right. It's pretty good. Yeah, thanks for asking. What have you been up to? So you mentioned the kind of normality and maybe ridiculousness of coming back to treating the individual patient in front of you as a resident and then as a neurosurgery trainee. The training program for any surgical specialty certainly has its own reputation and neurosurgery especially so. Are the rumours true? Was it as ruthless and demanding and tough as it's made out to be sometimes? Well, it's not ruthless if I'm there, is it? Correct. <laughs> Just can't be. I think it's it's demanding. Absolutely, it's demanding. Um, it has its seasons. There are times where you're like, everything is horrible. I hate today. Um, normally, when you have an exam, like because you have to do, you know, primary exams, fellowship exams, 
Um, and you don't really get a break to do those things. Like you're, you might have some study leave, but you're expected to keep performing your full-time job as you simultaneously do that. And so those periods are particularly grueling. Um, but I, and, and yeah, it's, it's certainly not a path for people who, um, you know, aren't hungry for hard work um, and who don't like challenges. I mean, if you don't want to be pushed and if you don't want to be like challenged, it, you, those things need to be really understood. Like it's not a straightforward or easy thing to undertake. But I think I'm concerned that there's a lot of talk about what is negative about neurosurgery training and other surgical training programs and not nearly enough discussion about the, the sheer unfettered joy of knowing that you've made like you've actually like you've just clipped an aneurysm or you've just taken out a brain tumor and the patient's woken up beautifully or someone came in with a foot drop and you've just done an operation and literally in recovery their foot has full power and those moments of teaching your juniors where they you see the light go on and you see them like fall in love with what you've fallen in love with you see the moments where you are able to make a breakthrough with explaining something to a patient who's been to like eight doctors and you're finally able to say this isn't in your head except for in that there's an actual thing on you in your brain and we have an operation for it you're not going crazy this is a real thing and you've come to the right place even the moments of sitting with a grieving family and telling them like really bad news but knowing that you've done it really well and that you've met them where they're at and that they understand um, and that you've helped them to go on their journey like in the best way that they can. All of those things we need to talk about a whole lot more. And I think we need to talk about the fabulous magical quality of a great team. And I've been very fortunate to be a part of some truly amazing teams in, in medicine and it's, it's a magical, magical thing when like everyone's pulling in the same direction and there's just enough of the like banter and fun and inside jokes and, and um, levity. Um, but there's this, like it's all safe because there's respect for everyone. Um, and you just know you can look after really sick people really well when you've got that energy going on and you know that you're looking after each other as well. So I think there's a lot that gets missed in the, again, it's back to that idea of like deficit narrative. We think about everything that's wrong with um, with surgery, with surgical training, with the profession, and we miss all the magic. We miss all the truly wonderful things. And I think, um, I think we have to present all of it as a whole. Another issue that's often talked about in the context of surgery, particularly has come to light in recent years, is issues of bullying and gender discrimination and harassment and some of these other more sensitive issues. And I know you've done a lot of work in this area through the Royal College of Surgeons as well. It's one of the issues that you've championed. Is this something that you think is getting better? Is it something that um, everyone can do something about every day? Tell us about the work that you and others are doing in this area. So there's lots of ways of thinking about this. I mean, historic, like taking it through the timeline, when, when I um, was in my second year of training, um, a couple of people suggested to me that I put my hand up to be the representative for like the neurosurgery trainees on the, on the set board of neurosurgery. And that meant I was also to be the, 
the representative to RACSTA, which is the training association for the College of Surgeons. So in my third year of training, I was in that role. And it like opened up this world to me of like all these ways you could like understand the problem, make change, you know. And RACSTA has been running a survey for like, it'll be close to 10 years now, collecting data every six months from trainees across, you know, two countries, nine specialties. Um, and one of the things that's been obvious to Raxter for a long time is that there is a problem with bullying and harassment. And up till then, the next year, like the year after I was the neurosurgery rep, the college said they were doing things about it, but there wasn't really significant buy-in or investment in, in solutions. And what happened in 2015 was that there was a specific story that got aired of a trainee who had... Um, been sexually harassed and it was that person's story was told not by them and I'm not sure it was told with their permission in the context of a book launch and some inflammatory comments were made at the time about it it would have been best if that it would have been better for that person's career if they'd just gone along with it that kind of thing and so this was clearly front page news very quickly and the very first response of most people in surgery was like duck and cover. But actually I'm incredibly proud to be a fellow of a college that then took the approach of going, all right, I think we've got a problem folks and we're going to do something about it. So the president of the college who at the time was David Waters went on YouTube and did a video apologizing unreservedly for harm caused by surgeons, you know, everywhere essentially, um, across these domains of um, discrimination, bullying, and sexual harassment. And, you know, he definitely copped some backlash for doing that. But those of us who, you know, were not the college president, but could see that there was a really powerful potential for good to be done by that person in that role, most of us, I think, really applauded that. And I thought it was a, a watershed moment. It meant we can't pretend there's no problem anymore. We've from the top down said there is a problem. And it, I suppose like as we're having this conversation, I don't know about you, but I've been reflecting on the lack of leadership that we've been seeing from the head of Collingwood Football Club in dealing with what is a demonstrated proven problem of racism in their club. And you can go both, you can go either way. And I think if I've learned anything from my journey within the surgical profession, because I'm a part of this profession and I can't distance myself from it or its problems. I have to see myself as part of the solution and drive for the change that I wanna see. What I've learned is you never waste a crisis. And so here's a bloody good crisis. Let's lean into it and get as much out of it as we can. And I think Rax did a pretty good job of like pouring in resources, energy and effort, political will to really understanding the problem and getting outside expertise to the problem and starting to put into place some solutions. And we have a long way to go. But whenever I get despondent about the lack of progress, I remember where we were before. And I think, who knows where we'll be in another five to 10 years. There's a great potential for things to be significantly better because we have started from the premise that although not everybody who's in the surgical workforce agrees that there's a problem, there has been an agreement from the top that there is. And sometimes you have to be ahead of, like that's what leadership is. You can't just reflect the mood in the room. That's an opinion poll. You're meant to be leading the tribe. You're meant to be pushing the conversation forward. And so if I think that there should be parity with 
um, gender and surgery, parity with indigenous participation in surgery. And I know that not everybody agrees with me. I have to make the case. Like I have to market that. I have to help invite people to see the world as I see it. That's what leadership is. So I think to your question, yes, things have improved, but we're not where we need to be. And it's literally everybody's business. So the thing I really want to combat is this idea that people have that like, I can't do anything about this because I'm not X or I'm not Y. If you wait until you're like the professor of the universe to do anything, you literally won't have the skills to change anything when you get there. You have to start practicing making change now and you have to learn how to speak truth to power from the beginning of your journey. And so I remember a really important conversation I had with, I was, so to set the scene, I was in Palestine. I was there visiting friends I'd met in, in Jerusalem and we were going on this massive hike. Like we were hiking towards Jericho. I was like, are we in the Old Testament now? Like it felt like we were in the Old Testament. And I was talking to um, a Palestinian Christian man who said, basically, I was like, oh yeah, this is really awful the way that like I'm seeing the separation wall and I can see how awful um, this like essentially apartheid-like system has been for everybody and how downtrodden everyone is. And I think I was sort of trying to relate in a way that made it sound like I thought that Palestinians were powerless. And I think in my head, probably that was the framing I had. And he looked at me when his eyes were like ablaze. And he said, no, Ruth, the oppressed still have agency. And I thought if a Palestinian Christian whose family are losing their land to a settlement can affirm that, then there's no bloody excuse for an intern or a medical student or whoever in the medical system who sees something and doesn't say something. You have power, you have agency, you have to use it. It is not an option to be like, oh, but I'm not a big kid yet. Like, mm -mm, that does not apply. Like he taught me in that one pronouncement that we've got to just call that nonsense out. You, you don't get to hide be behind your um, lack of seniority, because if you choose that as a as a shield, it will always be available to you. Because unless you're like like the CEO of the hospital or the prime minister, you'll be like, but but but. So don't make any excuses. You want to be savvy about how you make interventions, but you have to start doing it now. All of us have a responsibility. And when I think about what does it mean to be a profession, what's the difference between a profession and a trade? I've been thinking a lot lately about the fact that I think it's about self-regulation. So we're expected to regulate ourselves individually, but also as a profession. And if we fail at regulating the standards in our profession, that right will be taken away from us. So, you know, we won't be able to train our own juniors. There'll be more outside intervention into what it means to become a doctor, what it means to become a surgeon. And so we have to take seriously the responsibility we have to self-regulate. And if you think something isn't right in the workforce that you're a part of, then that's your business. And it's my business. Um, and you're not doing it all by yourself because there are other people too who want to take responsibility and make change. But you have to start doing that from the beginning because it doesn't actually get easier as you get older. Because if you haven't got any experience of sticking it to the man or speaking up, 
you don't develop those skills just by getting grayer. You just do, those are muscles that you you use or you lose. That's my sermon on that topic. Thank you. No, that's very enlightening. Thank you, Ruth. And I think if I may draw a silver thread through a lot of, a lot of what you've said um, in our conversation, um, from the cartoon in your PBL class to your work with nuclear weapons through the Royal College of Surgeons, Indigenous issues and, and all the other social justice causes that you uh, champion. It's to enact change when you see it and do it now and, and don't wait for something else to happen or a promotion or anything like that. And it's to really, to borrow a phrase, be the change that you want to see in the world. Absolutely. And don't wait for someone else. You're there. It's is your moment. So you've alluded to uh, some of the work you've done in terms of your research as well. Um, I know you've been working at WeHi and I believe you're very, very close to finishing a PhD. Is that right? So close and yet so far, every day a little closer. Yes, that's my main gig right at the moment, just getting that done. Yeah. In terms of research in your own career and the role that that has played and is going to play, can you tell us about how that supports and informs your clinical decisions and clinical decisions for other people based on the research that you've done? So I think that the sort of intellectual benefit of doing research and particularly doing like primary bench research is back to that methodological problems quote from Leslie Sclair, like you realise the methodological challenges of how we've achieved the evidence base we have in medicine. You realize that sometimes our dogma about certain things outweighs the evidence enormously. And when you're first learning a principle, you kind of have to just learn like the basics and run with the basics. But then as you become like more senior and perhaps a specialist and so you your your scope of practice becomes becomes a smaller slice of the pie but you go deeper into it you start to understand that lots of the things we do and we think is like super important and really critical maybe the papers don't actually support that it's so critical maybe we stick with a certain practice because it's safest and we have to be honest about the fact that we're doing it because it's safest but not necessarily like entirely evidence-based it's not it's the abundance of caution principle um and i think certainty is something that i struggled with particularly when i started doing experiments in my phd like you know in most of clinical medicine if you don't know what's going on with a patient or you don't know why they're not getting better there'll be someone smarter to ask there's someone else who will be able to come and bring an opinion to it now you might get multiple opinions if you get multiple clinicians but ultimately there's probably someone who has the right uh, mix of skills, training, and experience, who'll be able to come up with the best picture of what's going on here. And, you know, life is not house. Most of the time, patients have like defined conditions that can be treated or can't be treated. And it's, you know, there's, there's times where it's like, this is weird and wonderful, and we really don't know what's going on. But fortunately, for those of us mere mortals with just normal sized brains, that's not too often. Um, whereas in, in the lab, I would have something go wrong and I couldn't for the life of me figure out what had happened. And I would be super upset because like my cell prep that I spent ages getting to this point, it just turned to glue 
and now I couldn't do anything with it. I couldn't extract any protein. Like it's just this little, what is this? This is like a science experiment that's definitely gone bad. Like not in a fun way, like nothing exploded, nothing cool happened and there's nothing for you to, like this is just dumb. And I get really upset. And one day I've actually found myself in tears because I didn't know why this thing had happened. And I asked literally five different people in the lab, like my supervisor, a couple of postdocs, a couple of other PhD students, what they thought had happened. I got like five, actually, I'll be honest, I got six different opinions from five people about what had gone wrong. And then it was like, oh, I get it. Like nobody knows. It's not known. And maybe it's not knowable. Like maybe we'll just try it again and see what happens next time. You've just got to pick a variable and tweak it. Like it's just iterative and it's, and it's kind of tedious and... And it was like, oh my gosh, I'm all by, my, my, all by myself. But then I was like, well, that's the point, isn't it? Like if someone's done this before, then I shouldn't be doing it. Like, cause then I'm not doing anything new. Like I need to be doing novel research. That just means I'm gonna be, okay, I get it. I'm pulling my hair out for the whole PhD, right? Got it. And that was like a real wake up moment. And so there's this like long, long, long sort of process. And um, it's a very different process than the clinical process. And I think, you know, I'm grateful for my time in the lab where I can like just work through a protocol and do an experiment and see what happens. Cause it's a really, like it is actually good for the soul in its own way, but the frustrations when things don't work make me so grateful for the fact that actually, when you think about it in the clinical world, most of the time things do work. And there's something nice about the predictability of the body of evidence and the practice of medicine that it's this lovely craft where most of the time you do what you thought you were gonna do and a thing does what, like the body responds. And, and so, yeah, I, I think it's made, it's made me more grateful, more grateful for the, the, like, the beautiful things in medicine. Was that predictability and certainty something that attracted you to the specific area of neurosurgery, do you think? I don't think it was. I don't think I realized how much that was like part of what makes life lovely and wonderful when you're doing neurosurgery until I went off to do like not neurosurgery for a bit. And then I was like, oh, you can take me back. I also noticed interestingly, like while I was working in the lab, like when I do full-time research, I often find I get quite bad insomnia. And often it's cause like your thoughts are racing cause you're trying to put pieces together. Um, and you're a different kind of tired when you do that. And so when I first like went back to full-time clinical work after having been in the lab for a long time, like immediately I noticed that my insomnia disappeared and partly it's just because you're like so tired and sleep deprived but mostly I think it's just some of us are just designed to have patience you know and you just the whole system works best when I have like sick people in my life that I can help it seems to regulate everything else and I don't think it's a bad thing to acknowledge and admit that like in some ways we need our profession in the same way that the profession needs us like you're in the right job if it makes you feel better to be doing the job that's a good thing. We should celebrate that, right? Absolutely. In terms of your research, I, and I'm sure others, do find it interesting, uh, if not a little bit confusing sometimes, the concept of or the process of getting involved with research, the timing of research, how you balance your clinical work and your research. Is there a kind of a hard and fast rule to this? How did you get if involved? If only there were hard and fast rules. There are none. It's hard work and it's, and I will also acknowledge like open disclosure, this is probably not the right time to ask me about research because at the moment I'm like actively loathing, like, you know, every single figure in what I'm doing. And it's like, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's painful at the moment. Um, 
I think that it is purposeful to ask yourself, why am I doing this? And I know that why I'm doing what I'm doing has changed from when I started, because as you get further and further into the work, your motivations shift. So you might start out with external motivators like, oh, I need to do a research project because otherwise I won't get into X or I won't get to do Y or like my CV is missing a bit on that section. Like, and then as you actually start to grapple with a problem, it takes root in your soul and you're like, oh, this is so cool and interesting. Like, or oh, I really hate this and now I just have to get it finished so it doesn't plague me anymore. Like all of those feelings in one day, also possible. Um, so, you know, motivation it's good to be honest about your motivation like you're like i need to do a research project why to get a job okay fine be honest about it that's fine like i think people if you're trying to find someone to work with on something or find like a project to work on people value honesty like you want to be upfront about the fact that like i'm really passionate about x i'd really like to do a big project like this but i'm mindful that what i need in the next six months is something small do you have something suitable? Like figure out what your objectives are um, and go from there. And then as you get into research questions that matter to you, you'll probably find your like your brain and your heart for the work expanding. And that's great. Um, what I what I don't what I don't like is when people like pretend that they're like wrapped about something that they're not. Cause it's like like authenticity is really important. Like be honest. Yeah. Do you think supervisors and senior researchers are generally okay with that level of honesty? Depends. I mean, you want to think about how you say it. But, like, the point is don't lie, you know? Like, don't be like, oh, yes, I've always been so riveted by, you know, P50. No, you don't, not, you don't like that that much. Like, you know, be, be, like, be authentic, I guess I would say. Be authentic. So Ruth, in such an accomplished and prolific career, I dare to ask this question, what's next? Well, um, so I'm on the brink of starting uh, work as a consultant. Um, And my area of interest, my favorite part of neurosurgery is pediatric neurosurgery. So I, it's interesting because in med school, like when I started med school, I thought I might be a pediatrician. And I very quickly realized I wasn't a physician and that there's a difference in how people process um, information and how people think. And like, I realized I'm not a physician at all. I'm actually a surgeon. And I was always felt super drawn to like the operating theater and like the action and like the doing and the hands-on. And, and also like, I know that medical ward rounds are really important, but like, I, I just, like, I just, I just can't. I'm sorry. I can't. It's not for me. Like, I want the bulk of my day to be, um, you know, n- not, not that. And so um, I was a bit sad, though, because I was like, oh, I can't be a pediatrician if I'm not a physician. And so, like, when I did my pediatric neurosurgery term, which was like six months in my second last year of training, I was like, oh, the light went on. I was like, oh, it's come back round full circle. Like, the... The edges of the horseshoe have met like, oh, you can do this, but with little people, that's better. If there's one thing I learned on my pediatrics rotation, it's that children are not little adults. No, it's true. But what I think that the, the, the inverse is true, which is that, um, that, that adults are just big children. What do you think it is uh, about pediatrics that really turned that light on for you and, and really inspired you? 
So I think that people exist in community and in context, all people of any age. And in the pediatric version of anything, whether it's pediatric, like medicine, pediatric surgery, pediatric neurosurgery, pediatric anesthesia, whatever, there's a recognition that this patient exists in a family, they exist in a context. And when you do a ward round, like a pediatric neurosurgery ward round, you're rounding on a family. You know, you go into the room and there's a little kid or a baby with at least one grown up. You know, it's either a parent or a, or a, like a grandparent or, or a carer or an aunt or an uncle or somebody. And they are part of a larger network of people that keep that person alive and inform that person's health and well-being as well as their illness. And I think that when we see a single patient in the, in the adult medicine world, we, it's too easy to forget that they're part of a community, that they're part of a family, that they're part of a, that they have a life. But in peds, you never get to forget that. It's right there to the point that when a pediatric patient is being um, taken into for an operation and they're having an anesthetic, quite frequently, you know, a parent will be in the room with um, with the anesthetist as 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 Bub goes off to sleep, and that kind of integrated reality it just speaks to my whole worldview of you know people being whole people and integrated into their surroundings. And I think the other thing about like pediatric neurosurgery is, you know, pedi- like neurosurgery is already amazing because you've got this amazing anatomy that speaks to function so intricately and it's the anatomy that makes you who you are. Like who, your brain is, you know, really, you know, it gives you your personality and it gives you, you know, all of your cognition and everything else. And so you've got that beautiful map of function and structure that overlap. And then with pediatrics you get this other map of development on top of that and so it's another dimension it's like another axis and so it is a little bit like space travel in that way so it's it's the astronaut part of neurosurgery how does that sound that sounds pretty good and in terms of further career will we find you continuing your travels are you planning to stay in melbourne well i I will say that I will be in multiple places in the next couple of years, TBA, and obviously COVID restrictions, travel restrictions pending. But yes, watch watch this space. So Ruth, in closing, what do you think are the most important values that have helped you get to where you are today and that you can pass on to all of our listeners? I think that there are two things that are like the guiding principles for the way I do my clinical work. And I think that when I take them into my personal life, they serve me well as well. And that is, there's basically two things you can't do. You can't lie and you can't be lazy. So you, you've, got to, you've got to tell the truth about what happened, about what's happening, about how you're feeling, about um, about what's going on at any stage, whether it's about what happened to a patient, about whether it's about how you stuffed up during an operation, whether it's about a bad call that you made, about missing somebody being sicker than you thought they were, about getting the wrong diagnosis, whatever it is, um, you have to tell the truth. 
And the other is you've got to give it all of your gumption. You know, you, you, you can't hold back energy. You've got to give it all your energy. I think that those sort of principles have have kept me out of a lot of trouble and have given me like the orientation to to thrive and succeed and um and it's and it's those things that I like to try and instill in my juniors and that I like to affirm and celebrate when I recognize that they're already there and I particularly remember an I had a resident come to me once beside himself like almost in tears because I had entrusted him with a muscle biopsy sample that I had taken so it was his responsibility to self- safely get the muscle biopsy to the pathology lab and often for muscle biopsies there's like a central service for a whole city for a special um, muscle tests and so it's super specific protocol and he'd put uh, muscle sample into dry ice and it was meant to be in normal ice so it would have been colder than it than it should have been and he was beside himself because he was convinced this was then going to mean that they wouldn't get a proper assay in the lab and he was shaking and nearly crying as he told me about what had happened and I was like I would like you to be the person looking after my entire family because I now trust you with my life. And I think, and as it turned out, he phoned the lab and they're like, actually, it's not really that big of a deal. We used to think it was, but our test is better now or something like this. Like it, it ended up being fine. The patient got a diagnosis. We didn't have to redo it. It was fine. But the fact that he came and he told me, despite the fact that he was like so upset and he just told the truth and he did it right away, like take the bandaid off, don't sit and worry, just don't stew, just come and tell the truth that's a person I want as a colleague like that's a person I want as a friend and you have to ask yourself what would it what would be the qualities in who do I want looking after my family and it's those are the qualities so yeah when you see it you celebrate it you encourage it and um you know buy that resident ice cream that's a great note to finish on I think Ruth and uh, great advice as has appeared many times in our conversation Um, for all of our listeners from the pre-medical and the medical students um, all the way up to uh, the you know the consultants and the senior doctors Um, thanks so much for the time that you've uh, given us today and for appearing on our show we've loved chatting to you we're looking forward to following you in the future thank you for having me it's been absolutely delightful good luck with all of your endeavors fantastic thank you so much Ruth this episode of The Time Out was brought to you by Aidan, Ganisht, Chloe and Noreen. A special thanks to the outgoing team of Jason, Alex and Karen for their great work last year and for allowing us a chance to steer the ship they created. Don't forget to subscribe to The Time Out on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and let us know on Facebook or Twitter if you're enjoying our interviews or have any ideas for the show at TTO Podcast. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Medical Indemnity Protection Society and the Department of Surgery at the University of Melbourne for their ongoing support.